Hi, and thanks for tuning in to Speak Up, Speech Pathology Australia's podcast. Each week, we feature an interesting, thought-provoking and clinically relevant conversation to enhance your speech pathology practice. Let's hear from this week's contributors. Hi, and welcome to Speak Up. My name is Emily McVeigh, and I am a member of the Speak Up podcast reference group. I am hosting today's podcast from Ghana Lands. I feel very grateful to be hosting the podcast today as I work at Autism SA supporting autistic individuals and their families across the lifespan with their communication and mealtime goals. And so I'm very excited about the conversation we're having today about the Supporting Autistic Children Guideline developed by the Autism CRC. Um, So we're joined today by two of the individuals who have contributed to the work of the Autism CRC, uh, first being Dr Emma Goodall. So she is an autistic author, advocate um, and qualified meditation and mindfulness teacher and also an adjunct research fellow at the University of Southern Queensland. She is the manager for content and research for positive partnerships and also runs Healthy Possibilities, a consultancy offering personal life coaching um, alongside autism-specific continuing professional development for educators and families and NDI services, Um, many with, you know, that link to interception, which you've done some fantastic work on. Um, So Emma speaks widely on the topic of interception and the role of mindful body awareness and how that plays into emotional regulation. So hello, Emma. Hi, thanks, Emily, and I'm coming to you from Ghana lands as well. Fantastic. Um, And we also have David Trembath, who is an Associate Professor in Speech Pathology at the Menzies Health Institute in Queensland at Griffith University. Um, He brings to the CDG over 20 years of clinical research experience working with children on the autism spectrum and their families. Hello, David. Hi, Emily. Hi, Emma. I'm joining from the lands of the Kumbamari people. Cool, fantastic. Um, so can you guys t- maybe start us off by telling us a little bit about what is the Autism CRC and some of the history and background um, so that, you know, some of our speechy listeners uh, can get to know a bit more about you guys. David, I'm going to let you answer that one. <laughs> okay, thanks, Emma. Look, the Autism CRC um, kicked off in around 2013. And the idea was to bring together all of the different um, people and organisations who are interested in research and moving the field forward um, in in the field of autism. And when I say bring people together, that meant autistic people, family, community, as well as practitioners uh, and researchers. So it was a a big undertaking. Uh, It's been around now for over 10 years. And uh, the work of the Autism CRC really focuses on research that makes a difference in people's lives, a positive difference in the early years through the teenage years and then into adult life as well. There's one other thing that the the Autism CRC has done that's quite different to other organisations that that are like that, which is that it's really championed the co-construction of the research so that everything is nothing about us without us. And they've really gone... Um, out of their way to understand and work with autistic adults so that we're part of the research that goes on and um, they have run some really amazing programs through the Sylvia Rogers Academy 
um, training autistic adults in things like um, being on boards or the Future Leaders Program. And so they've really, really worked really well on that as well. Just incredible work you guys are doing. And I know that uh, the autistic and autism community really appreciates it. And so do all the, um, you know, professionals and organisations, you know, supporting autistic individuals, because I think what you guys do so well is, you know, getting a lot of information and synthesising it to make it really usable information, which is often very hard with research. (laughs) There has been a new guideline released in February of this year um, that's supporting autistic children. Um, so can you tell us what what is a guideline intended to do and what is it not intended to do before we dive into what um, some of the big things are within the guideline that we want to know? So the guideline is really intended to be a guideline for families um, and professionals as well around what the evidence is for different kinds of supports. Because if you if you Google autism and supports, you'll come up with hundreds of thousands if not millions of results and not everything is evidence-based so it's really important that people have access to information that's easy to understand that says yep this kind of support is evidence-based for this kind of outcome because occasionally not occasionally quite frequently um, people will find a support and it's said to to make a difference overall and there's very few things that would actually do that it's really about something may be great for communication something else may be really great for motor skills and so forth so it sets out to help people make decisions about what supports to use for for themselves or for their their family members for the people they're working with yeah absolutely no that sounds great um david did was there anything you wanted to add to that one i think emma summed it up beautifully you know it's um yeah it's a great opportunity it's been a you know in our field a long time's coming for us to have a document like this that sets out what practitioners can do to make sure their supports they provide are safe and effective and and desirable so um, it fills a real gap in that way yeah Definitely. And I think as well, um, you know, being a therapist and working with autistic individuals, I think we talk a lot about how if you know one person on the spectrum, you know one person on the spectrum. And I think that, you know, sort of reminds us why things are a guideline and why, you know, we have to use our clinical judgment when working with individuals to really get to understand the individual, their family, you know, what supports they have in place and then what research is available, but also, you know, just... Uh, you know, pulling in everything we know and, you know, our own experiences to, um, you know, ensure that uh, when we're working with individuals, it's really supportive for them and it's supporting them to achieve their goals. So, uh, yeah, so um, there have been a few different reports and guidance documents in Australia over the years. What is different about this one and why should we follow it? (laughs) I think I think the key difference for me as as an autistic adult is the language of this one, this idea that um, all supports should be neurodiversity affirming and that, as David said, they should be desirable so that the the goals and the outcomes should be something that the individual and their families and carers really want, not just something that we think, oh, you should do this. And that's a really big difference. Um, And I think it makes it a really powerful guideline. Yeah, I agree, Emma. No, thinking about when I started out, it's a bit over 20 years ago now, and um, 
since that time, there have been sort of a series of reports where people have um, looked to summarise the research evidence available at that time. And each of those reports have been really important and valuable at the time they were produced. But what we've found over time is that um, we need to go further. And I think that one of the key differences with this guideline is that when we see the recommendations and the good practice points that help explain how to implement the recommendations, what we're seeing is the convergence of multiple different perspectives. We're seeing the autistic community, the broader autism community to come together around those recommendations. And you only need to, if, if you're brave enough, have a look at the supporting evidence, which outlines illustrative quotes from each of the different activities that went on. And you'll see the, the depth of, of support across each of those communities. So I think that's that's a key difference, you know. It's not just about the research evidence, about the evidence that's coming from people's lived expertise, their lived experiences, and bringing all of that together to come up with a set of, um, you know, sensible, um, feasible recommendations that can make a really big difference if they're, they're implemented. Absolutely. They're both fantastic points. And, yeah, I think... Um, being able to, you know, see those examples and really, you know, as you touched on having those, um, you know, quotes and, you know, direct examples of people's lived experiences is so helpful because it can be really hard for some people to, you know, understand different perspectives until, you know, they've heard what that perspective is. You know, some of us aren't, you know, creative enough to think about what that could be like and that's why it's really important for us to learn um, you know, from autistic individuals and their lived experience, um, you know, to keep improving and, you know, doing better once we know better. Mm. Uh, so what are some of the changes that you were hoping to see with this work? I think because the framing of this work is so different and because it includes the voices of that lived experience across, you know, not just the researchers, but the autism and the autistic communities as well, um, I'm really hoping from a personal and a professional viewpoint that it does change the way that um, professionals, families and society as a whole looks at autism and autistic individuals and kind of starts to move into that strengths-based focus. You know, you're already good at this. What is it that we can do to support you to be the best you that you can be rather than trying to change somebody to being non-autistic, which is not possible, um, but to be the best autistic person that you can be. And and as David said, and I've said as well, that they're the goals that the person is choosing, that they're desirable, that that's what they want to do. That's that's part of them being the best them they can be. Yeah, definitely. I, I was going to add as well, sort of on that, what I like about this guideline in terms of supporting autistic children is that focus on the goal setting but I think sometimes you know a lot of children do have their own ideas of what goals they want to work on or what's important to them and sometimes I think as therapists because the you know parent is the adult in the interaction sometimes it's easy to be led by what the parent wants to do and sometimes I think you know the challenge of being a really good therapist sometimes is actually you know being a bit of a um, intermediate between the parent and the child sometimes to, you know, help the parent to understand, you know, the child and their needs and what goals, um, you know, the child wants to work on that will be really supportive for them. So, yeah, those, yeah, really great points. Yeah, it's a great, great point, Emily. And um, 
yeah, you know, we talk in the guideline around assent and this issue of how do we know that when we're working with kids and families, that the kids themselves are feeling comfortable with what's happening, that it's something that that they're finding meaningful and valued. And it's not straightforward. You know, we provide an explanation of, of what this can look like and how people can approach it. So um, definitely suggest people look at that section in the introduction of the guideline. But the principle there of at every stage as we're working with kids and families, let's be asking ourselves the question, what information do I have? What evidence do I have? Right now at this time, and across the time of us working together, this is something that is meaningful and, and valued by the child, that it's it's helping them, um, and that there is that level of assent, even if they're not in a position to provide consent at, at that age or um, because of their, their you know, communication and cognitive skills. But I guess in terms of the outcome and, and building on or adding, extending on, on what Emma was saying, which I agree with completely, you know, when we think about this type of way of working and the types of supports we're talking about, that they are effective, they are desirable, I'd love to see the guideline set the standard and that we start to hold each other to that standard more within the field and across fields as well. There's so many people out there who I think we're generally with the best of intentions are trying to be helpful. I think we really need to raise the standard of practice in, in this field and the guideline can give us a, a good framework, something that we can get together around and work out where we're strong at the moment, where we need to do more work and, and how, to, how to get there and support each other um, to get there as well. I think when, when you're talking about that um, ascent and people's communication abilities, it really makes me hope that going forward when a a young person makes it clear they don't want to do something um, through their behaviour and their actions, that that is understood in the light of the guidelines as actually they're not assenting to it. They're not giving consent. That's not what they want to do. And that that's time for the therapist to go back and negotiate with the family and say, actually, this isn't working for the young person. What else do you think that they might want to work on so that we spend our time in the most valuable way possible? And that will be a massive shift. Absolutely. And yeah, we, we know that, you know, behaviour can be a really huge way of communicating for a lot of people, especially children. Um and something that, you know, all children we use to communicate. So it's not, you know, specific to autistic children. Um, and so, yeah, really important for therapists to, again, like consider what's, what is your role here? Uh, what does this behaviour mean? How can we, you know, really understand the child and uh, what their goals are and what, you know, how we can provide that support, uh, which can you know, it can be really challenging as a therapist to, you know, step back, especially when you, you know, sometimes you might have a nice, lovely plan of what you want to do and you've got your idea of how to achieve the goals <laughs> and when something, you know, best plans. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then it's like, you know, then we have to be, you know, flexible thinkers, which we know can be hard. So, um, yeah, it can be really challenging to, to, um, reframe what therapy looks like so that you still feel successful but it might look different to what you initially thought so I think yeah the guideline definitely helps to challenge some of those things to keep therapists growing and improving definitely I feel like that's you know 
it's not so much what you do in therapy, it's how you adapt as the need changes and as your understanding changes. So rather than sort of people us thinking about that as kind of time that's you know wasted if you like in therapy it's actually the very most important thing that we look at what's happening we work out that maybe it's not working as well as it should or could and we make those adaptations and that time is just the most important so important to invest in it and to see that as part of the process that's where you know that's what separates us from a a set of machines we're humans with training and skills and knowledge and whatnot when we can work with kids and families to understand where things are up to, what's working well, what's not working well, make those changes. That's where the, the real important work happens and the expertise is so important. So, yeah, there's no dead time there. That's an incredibly important investment. And, and it's not even just that it's the important investment. It's, again, another shift in thinking because when I trained many years ago, I was taught that um, autistic individuals weren't interested in personal relationships and interacting with mm. others. And we now know that, the evidence is that the interpersonal relationship is the most important part of that therapeutic relationship, just as it is with anybody else. And the guidelines really help to bring that to the fore. And again, it's that shift in thinking, that shift in practice, because if if people focus on that therapeutic relationship and getting to understand and know, know the young person and the child, then all the supports they provide are going to be more impactful and more meaningful and more it's going to be more because the child will want to interact. And if there's that kind of pushback from the child where they're like, I'm just not doing that through their actions, um, that will be respected. And then again, the young person will feel valued and heard. And that we know impacts positively on mental health. So this has the potential to be so much more than just a guideline of what therapies and supports are provided. Yeah, that's a very, very great point there, Emma. Um, So can you guys let us know some of the key take-home points from the guide that uh, speech pathologists can integrate into their daily practice right away? One of the key ones I'll speak with, it's hard to PK, but one of the key ones is around individualised support. And that just couldn't, the need for that could not have come through more strongly or clearly in the community consultation about 800, over 800 people were involved in that process. So they were completing surveys, participating in focus groups, a whole range of different approaches. And a message that kept coming through is my child or my my experience of autism is different to everybody else's and my set of circumstances and my preferences and my goals are different to everybody else's. And, yeah, this, this idea that we do genuinely individualised support is really critical. So that can include the way we we set goals, absolutely, led by the child and the family. But it also comes through in the way that we select supports and we deliver those. Who delivers them? In what context? How much? For over what amount of time? All of those questions we need, you know, should be a different answer for each individual child and family. We should work together to work out what the best like the likely best answer is for each child and family so that's when I'd be sort of thinking about my practice thinking about individual clients but also across the caseload to what extent am I currently individualizing that support and what could I be doing further to to make that that possible how about you Emma I think for me one of the key take takeaway points for speech pathologists is really around 
respecting that autistic communication is different mm. than non-autistic communication and that the goals should work to improve autistic communication styles mm. and to work with the client of whatever age they are to make sure they have a communication system that works for them no matter what it is no matter whether it's low tech high tech speech whatever but that it's it's again that individualized practice but that it works for them as autistic individuals so they're not having to mask the whole time that they're communicating they're not having to constantly filter what they're thinking before they communicate that that they can learn the skills to express their needs, wants um, and desires and be comfortable doing that in different contexts. And I think that's, again, it's such a different way of practicing, but I think that's really a key takeaway for me because that will mean over time that the burden of mental health on autistic individuals will really decrease and that will be fantastic. Yep. That is great. Very, very valid points there from both of you. And, yeah, I think both of those areas are things that speech pathologists can absolutely, um, you know, take on board with their um, practice. Um, and I guess in terms of the individualised support as well, say Autism SA, I'm very fortunate to work with, you know, occupational therapists and, um, you know, behaviour practitioners, so lots of other disciplines. And so I can learn a lot from them about, um, you know, their areas and what they focus on. So, for example, occupational therapists learn a lot about, um, you know, regulation. And so uh, what we know is that, you know, for sometimes working on communication goals like if an individual is not regulated it's going to be really hard to even you know for them to actually process anything we're saying so um I think as well you know thinking about individualized support it'll be a great opportunity for um you know speech pathologists out there um you know if they're not fortunate enough to work in a multidisciplinary team thinking about what professional development opportunities they might need to you know be able to better support um you know the individuals that they're working with um, so sort of leaning on from that, um, and we've touched on it a little bit already, but, you know, we know that neurodiversity affirming practice is, you know, a really popular topic at the moment and it's being spoken about a lot. So I guess to start off a bit of a conversation on that area, um, how, how do you guys uh, define neurodiversity affirming practice or what does it mean to you? Well, to me, what it means is that you're saying, okay, by by being autistic, your, your brain is different and you experience and respond to the world differently because you process it differently. You experience it, process it and respond. And if we're going to have neurodiversity affirming practice, what we're going to do is make sure that our practice respects that the way you experience the world, process the world and respond to it is valid and fine. We're not going to say you must do it how non-autistic people do it. Um, and that that's just amazing. It's just so wonderful. And it changes the whole conversation, I think. Um, and yeah, just it's about enabling the person to be the best autistic they can be or the best autistic and ADHD or whatever their combination of neurodiversity is. I couldn't agree more. I think as a this need to genuinely value the diversity and the difference and the person for who they 
who they are exactly as they are. And um, if we do that, not only is it good for the person, but it can it leads to the most rewarding way of working with other people because it's the most respectful, it's the most productive, it's the most kind of human. Um, so it's an incredibly important um, development in the way that we're thinking about autism, the way that we're encouraging practice and so forth. I feel like we've got quite a way to go in terms of coming to some sort of consensus in the field around what this actually means and looks like in practice. And I'm not sure we'll ever arrive at a specific kind of definition and set of, you know, things that we do. I think it's going to be more around our approach to the, our, the way that we work, the way that we, we think about our work, and then how that is reflected in our practice, the way that we work with people. So it's a, it's, the guidelines are, yeah, I think, an important first step in making it clear that this is something that we have heard loud and clear from the autistic and, and autism communities. Um, and now there's a kind of a next step in terms of really putting that in practice and, and finding the best ways to do that. And I think it's hard, it's hard to actually, you know, say this is the best way because it's such a conceptual thing. It's really understand the person that you're working with and accept that they are just fine in the way that they, you know, experience, process and respond and then find the ways to support them that are beneficial for them with, you know, minimal unintended consequences so that you're looking to be as supportive um, as possible so that the the experience is always positive and that progress is is happening and is meaningful and you can't really kind of write a one size fits all for that because it's never going to because we're all so different um yeah <laughs> it's interesting when the the draft guideline went out for public consultation and people read it and then gave feedback and we looked at every single comment and we responded to every every single comment um making edits to the guideline as we went but one of the things a lot of people ask for is please give us more concrete um, information about how to do A, B, and C. And one of those things was around neurodiversity affirming practice. Another one was around assent, and, and there are several others. And I think this is a difference between a guideline and a professional development resource. The guideline sets out the recommendations and really helps us understand what we're, we're striving for, what we should expect in practice and should be doing. But then there's another whole step in terms of the implementation. What does it look like um, in practice? And I agree with Emma. Yeah, it's unlikely that we're going to end up with a recipe. It almost might run counter to the whole concept mm. of working in a neurodiversity-affirming practice because that would start with a, a, an assumption at the beginning that there is one way to do that. Um, but, yes, yeah. it's, a, it's a really interesting area of practice and just seeing so many really positive and constructive conversations in the speech pathology community around this and and more broadly as well yeah definitely agree and agree that if yeah if we start getting too prescriptive on things then that's going to totally undo all the good we're doing about talking about how how we got to you know think about the individual and what's going to work for them because we know you know we're all so different um you know humans are different <laughs> and that's what keeps the world an exciting place so <laughs> we want to you know help encourage other people to you know be their own person and um you know feel comfortable in that but also yeah just recognize um you know what those goal areas they are and i think um you know for example one area that i think speech pathologists um 
or, you know, a common goal that might come up are things like turn-taking or, you know, having a conversation and some of those like social communication skills. Um, and I think sometimes people hear neurodiversity affirming practice and feel like, oh, I can't, I can't work on any of that stuff. Um, mm. But it's not about, you know, not working on it. It's more just about the lens. But I don't know, what do you guys think on those sorts of things that come up in the it's so it's so interesting because when I hear turn taking, I think immediately of a really common autistic thinking style, which is whatever I'm doing now is the what is what I'm always going to be doing. Whatever I think now, I'm going to be thinking forever. And a neurodiversity affirming practice in teaching turn taking would understand that thinking style and would s- sort of scaffold turn taking in a way that supported the individual to understand, okay, yes, you're doing this now, but when you stop, it doesn't mean you're stopping forever. You will get to go again, which most people understand, but autistic people don't necessarily. And I know I didn't get that for a very, very long time. So if we're thinking about little children who that's a developmental stage for all children, it makes it so much harder and a neurodiversity affirming practice can absolutely teach turn taking, but just taking into account that thinking style and teaching social communication skills is perhaps about experiencing autistic space first as an observer and seeing how autistic people communicate with each other, whether or not they're using speech and that they communicate in quite a different way. For example, I might never make eye contact with people in a a room that's autistic space. We still know who we're talking to. We're still able to have um, great communication. We might info dump and that's perfectly socially acceptable. So it's about understanding, experiencing that or finding other people to explain that to you, watching, um, you know, YouTube videos and stuff to really understand what it is that is autistic experience in social communication and why teaching us in particular very highly scripted ways is not necessarily going to be useful. That's not necessarily a neurodiversity affirming practice. And yet teaching someone through Prolo to go or another device might be the best way to go. So it's all about that, knowing your person and just understanding that that autistic space concept around how we communicate with each other. Yeah, that's great. I think there will be a lot of speeches listening um, to this that will be very um, pleased to sort of, you know, hear a bit more about that sort of stuff. And I think it will also get um, some of the listeners interested in actually reading the guidelines. (laughs) So I think that will be great. Uh, Mission accomplished. Um, But in terms of, I guess, you know, resources or things that um, speech pathologists could use, do you do either of you have um, any recommendations of resources that you think um, speech pathologists would find helpful aside from the guidelines? There is a fact sheet that um, I wrote with Speech Pathology Australia on autism and communication, and it explains some of that kind of autistic style of communication that's more natural for us. Um, and it's it's really easy to read. I think it's only three or four pages. And um, so Speech Pathology Australia have, have that resource. And then I think it's about just 
finding um, other resources. The Autism CRC obviously has tons of research um, in all kinds of area, not just the guideline. Um, and they're all also really, really useful. And then David can probably talk much more about things like supervision um, that speech pathologists can sort out for themselves. Yeah, thanks, Emma. I'm seeing loads of resources pop up all over the place, which is fantastic. And the way that I'm taking that is people are keen to work in this area. They, they're keen to move practice forward, keen to share uh, and to put ideas out there, which is fabulous. I think probably the, so rather than sort of suggest specific ones of those, which, you know, um, uh, I think probably the thing I'd say at the moment is I'm seeing a, in some areas a tendency for people to say, look, that's neurodiversity affirming practice or it's not, and to sort of categorise things as yes or no. And I think what I'd really encourage people to do is um, to talk about it, to hear each other's perspectives and different ways of seeing this, to listen to autistic people, um, please, in terms of um, getting our heads around what, what, it, what it means. Um, but to really ask the question, not is it neurodiversity affirming practice or not, but to what extent and how do I know that? What are the indications that it, that it is or is not? And I think that will allow us to get to a, a better point sooner than sort of just categorising yes or no. So in looking at resources, that's something I'd be looking out for. I'd be less inclined to go to things that tell me that there's it's an on or off, it's yes or no, and more inclined to, to go to resources that really engage with the question of, of how, what does it look like? What is it, what's the experience for the person who's receiving it, et cetera? That sounds great, David. And I think those are some really awesome questions that speeches can sort of, you know, write down or commit to memory. <laughs> they, can, they can keep thinking about when they're, you know, planning, um, you know, those sessions with clients and thinking about what that, um, you know, what that can look like. So following on from what David was saying, it might be that, you have a standing question in your supervision session that says, you know, where am I at with my neurodiversity affirming practice? Um, and just have a little bit of a conversation about what you're thinking about and how, how that's impacting your practice or not impacting your practice yet. What are the barriers to even going down that conceptual pathway? And then what are the enablers? And how are you... Kind of reflecting on is it working for my clients because at the end of the day this is all about improving outcomes for uh, our autistic folk in the community so thank you emma that sounds fantastic and you know that's what we're all about isn't it <laughs> uh, supporting autistic individuals um to you know get the outcomes that they want um, with the support that we're providing uh, so what are the next steps of the guideline and where can people learn more? Mm. Autism CRC website is where you can <laughs> download the guideline from um, and the, the layperson summaries too. Um, so you don't have to read the entire guideline if you don't want. There are some little bits that you can look at too. Um, and, I, and I think once you've engaged with that, then it's about what do you want to learn more about? and then going down that path for yourself. Mm, I agree. There'll be um, Autism CRC is working on some additional resources that will come online um, sort of 
Uh, we expect by certainly by the end of this year and, and possibly even sooner. So thinking about things like professional development courses and quick reference guides and those types of things that they develop for the assessment and diagnosis guideline, which um, we're looking to replicate here. There is um, a plug for the conference. You know, there'll be um, some sessions at the conference that will definitely be relevant to this. And um, Speech Pathology Australia has been fantastic in trying to build resources around this and supports and so on. So I'd expect to watch this space. Speech Pathology Australia will continue to be a really good um, point of contact for knowing what's becoming available and when. And um, yeah, but certainly there will be there will be more. But a lot of this will be co-constructed over the next couple of years as well. So there'll be an initial sort of resources release, but a lot of this is new. So we really need to work together to um, yeah, develop the supports for our current colleagues and future colleagues coming through universities. Definitely, that sounds great. And in terms of, I guess, future projects is if speech pathologists have an idea of something that they want to know more about or resources that they might like, do the Autism CRC have, you know, a contact email that people can, you know, get in touch to give ideas? Is that something that um, you guys welcome or is that, you know, uh, obtained in other ways? <laughs> yeah, great question. Um so Autism CRC has an email address. I believe it's guidelines at autismcrc.com. But um, please don't rely on the recording. Uh, check whatever information comes with the recording. But there is, so Autism CRC does have that email address and you're welcome to write to that. That actually um, comes to, to me and a few others. So we'll see it that way. But also as colleagues, you're also always welcome to reach out. It's been amazing over the last, oh, what's this been? A little while. Um, where people have reached out and shared what they're working on and the, the sort of interest that they have. So always do please feel welcome to reach out directly. Oh, that sounds great. Um, so that brings us to the end of our conversation. Uh, thank you both so much for your time today and thank you for listening. Make sure you tune in for next week's conversation. We hope you enjoyed this week's conversation please be sure to subscribe or follow the podcast and share it with your colleagues. You can also visit us at speechpathologyaustralia.org.au. Thanks for listening and bye for now.